Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety almost eight years ago now, back in 2011. So I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And today we have a number of guests who shared their stories with me at a retreat uh, earlier uh, late last year, I guess it was. Uh, I've been holding on to their recordings for uh, a few months now, waiting for the right time to share them with you. So two episodes ago, you heard some of these recordings on the episode of Voices from Early Recovery. And now we have more voices in recovery, and we have eight women who share their stories from later on into recovery. And uh, I'm really excited to share them with you now. Um, before I do that, let me tell you, warn you a little bit that sometimes I was standing too close to an elevator, so you'll hear some bings and bongs in the background. Um, sometimes the women are a little bit soft-spoken. You may have to adjust your volume up and down as you're listening, so please be patient with that. Uh, also, you've noticed that this uh, episode is coming a little bit late. Um, I have had a crazy week the last week. I've been doing some fun stuff. Um, if you want to see what that is, you can go to my Instagram page, which is Jean McCarthy Writes, and uh, see what uh, I've been up to there. And also, I've blogged a bit about it on Unpickled as well, because I had one of my first really kind of startling cravings that I've had in a long time. And, and I thought it was important for people to know that even at seven years and 10 months sober, uh, you can still kind of get whacked in the face once in a while with a craving. And it's really important to prepare yourself for that or to just be aware of it so that you're not caught off guard. Anyway, I wrote about that on unpickledblog.com. So you can have a look at that. That'll catch you up with why I uh, haven't had time to record in the last week. So here I am. I'm going to do two back-to-back episodes. So I'm releasing this today, which is a Sunday. Tomorrow, I'll have another guest on. Uh, in fact, a dude this time. Uh, Ian will be joining me to tell uh, his story of recovery. But without any further ado, I want you to meet these amazing women who shared their stories with me uh, at a recent retreat. So first, I want you to meet Linda. Linda's 10 months sober. She's very soft-spoken, but she's the kind of friend that all of us need in our life. She's really grounded and wise. She's open and honest. Uh, Linda's a retired teacher, and it shows. The way she listens to other people is a way that lets you know that she really cares. She really wants to learn what it is you have to teach her. And, uh, and she sees almost everything as a teachable moment. So to have a conversation with Linda is to really be engaged and to really feel listened to, but also uh, to mirror that back. And really, um, she inspired me to be a better listener and to really take seriously all the things that she talked about. So here you go. Meet Linda. I'm Linda. Um, I am. I have ten months in recovery, um, and um, I'm retired. Um, and I am living in a house with uh, three other women um, that we consider to be a sober house of our own creation, um, ages ranging from 30 to 70. Um, and um, we're hoping possibly to encourage other women to try something like that. I think that is amazing. I think everybody in our group was like, that's brilliant. It's so brilliant. Is there a downside, or is it all good all the time? Um, We're new at it. Uh, We're only into it for um, three months. 
Um, so far, it has all been upside, um, and we're hoping to continue and figure it out as we go along. What have been some of the main benefits of shared living and sharing a home with other sober women? Um, I think that we're all connected, first of all, through our uh, through our addiction. And secondly, life is not just a snapshot of a meeting or a snapshot of a retreat. Life is lifey. <laughs> and, um, and for instance, uh, one of our uh, housemates uh, just lost her job. And that's certainly something that could trigger somebody back into their addiction. And so we're kind of closing the ranks and trying to figure out how to help her and yet how to encourage her uh, to move forward. Um, and... Um, so those are the kinds of things that we're trying to do with each other is to not only help each other but to call each other on what we see as problem behavior or threatening behavior or, or those kinds of things. Your um, sobriety date versus retirement, which came first? Uh, retirement came first. Um, retirement came because I was taking care of family members who were ill and eventually died. Um, and I couldn't take any more time off from work, and um, so I retired. And I think that was part of what pushed things into a, um, a greater state uh, uh, in, my, uh, in my addiction. Um, the lack of structure, uh, the lack of people. I wanted to isolate. I just needed time. And um, <clears throat> for me, in particular, I'm a person who gets energy from people and gives energy to people. And because I isolated, I was getting no energy into my world. And I was just, um, my batteries were just drained. Um, and I just wanted to check out. I want to ask you about something I noticed during the sharing circle. Um, when someone was struggling to tell their story, it was really emotional. I noticed you put both your feet on the floor and put your palms upright and mm -hmm. you closed your eyes. Can you talk to me about sure. what you were, what was going on in that moment? Yeah, um, strong emotional content, especially struggling emotional content. Um, instead of just looking at the person, I like to close my eyes and take in what they're saying. And also I'm trying to make spiritual connection at that time, some kind of visualization of a higher power that is encircling that person or or holding on to that person as they're telling their very difficult, vulnerable truth. Um, and I've just found that instead of just getting into the, oh, no, this is so difficult, it's a positive way of kind of trying to help that person express what they need to express, what needs to be heard. It was very beautiful to behold. It was. There's, you, you were surrounded by some kind of magical light. I think it was working. <laughs> I think Great. it's effective. Um, Last question for you is um, because you're recovering in a 12-step mm -hmm. and you're living with other women, that it, your home is, is like one giant recovery meeting. Mm -hmm. I mean, even here you were saying you were having coffee in your room and, yep. and starting your day with readings, and so your, your life is really immersed in the structure of that program. How did it feel to step out of that and come to a retreat that was focused on learning about all pathways or various pathways, um, sitting in a sharing circle where things were maybe a little bit looser or a little bit different. It, it occurred to me at the at the time that that might feel a little bit uncomfortable for someone who was really like rigidly dogmatic mm -hmm. into any program. Um, and I'm just wondering if that was uncomfortable for you at all or if it, if it, um, if there was any takeaways from that experience. Um, <clears throat> I am um, I am AA based, and um, uh, actually um, along these lines, one of the things I've been doing is taking courses to become a recovery coach. And I had to kind of put the brakes on that because a recovery coach has to advocate for their um, uh, for their client in any type of recovery that they want to explore. And that's difficult for me to do because I know that certain things don't work and I know that certain things may be unproven and, and there are other things I don't know about yet. But it's difficult for me to send somebody into what I perceive to be a lion's mouth without 
um, cautioning them about it. And the job of a recovery coach is to advocate for them and send them on their way. And so when I see people um, uh, in this format and they're exploring uh, various avenues, and I am all for that because everybody is on their journey, and mm -hmm. their journey is going to take them uh, through ins and outs. And um, very often, like a parent, I think you want to stop them and say, look, you know, people have been there. That has not been successful for them, or this may be a more successful tack, but people are on their journey. And ultimately, I think in terms of compassion and support for each other, we have to support them um, in their own um, illumination of whatever it is they need to do to, to be a complete person. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Next, I want you to meet Carol. Carol is a four-year sober, and she also had a really ex interesting experience with rehab and sober living. So I thought I'd give you uh, her take on that as well, a little bit different take on things. Hi, Carol. <laughs> Hi, Jean. <laughs> um, so first, tell me a little bit about how long it has been since you became alcohol-free and what you love about it. Okay, so um, it's been uh, almost four and a half years since I've been alcohol-free, and the gifts are many. Um, a great group of women friends that I have in sobriety and better relationships with my family, especially my children, and those are especially the two top things that I get out of it. Better health, um, feeling much better, uh, you know, those are big things too. And how did you do it? Um, I went first went to a treatment place. I had had some issues. Um, I was really drinking all the time around the clock, and uh, I had an accident with my car. And uh, I kind of came to the realization that the next time I did this, I would probably hurt somebody or kill somebody. So I asked for help, and I had a therapist who knew a place that was a residential 12-step place. I went there, and. Uh, after that, I went into sober living for six months. And that's six months. six months? That might be the longest I've ever heard anyone do Oh, sober my gosh. Living. Someone in my friends were like, 19 months, and I, I'm going to be going over there to help out a house manager because she wants to get away. And, she, and I said, how long have you been there? She says, 21 months. And I said, I think you have the record now. So, yeah, it's, it's a great place. And I think women who have been there find it, like, if you need it, you know, stay. And that's. That's what's good, and we try to encourage people to do that. Yeah. Now you're married, and how old were your children when you were in uh, treatment and outpatient? Okay, my, um, my son is, ma is, well, he was out of the house. He's now 33, so he was 29 when I went into treatment. My daughter, is uh, she was in senior in high school, junior, senior in high school when I went into, so she's now 21, to about 17 when I went in, so yeah. They were, so the daughter was still at home with her father while I was away. And what were the logistics of that? How did that work? Did you see your family at all? Did they come to visit you? Did you go home? Tell me a little bit about that. Okay, so when I was in treatment, they had visiting on uh, Saturdays, and I, you know, I had like a whole crew. My family would come, uh, my husband, my daughter, my son, his girlfriend at the time. Um, two very close friends, and that was almost almost every Saturday. And then when I was in the sober house, um, once I had the, once you're there 30 days, and there are some rules that you have to get a get well job, and then you can have overnights at home. And so I would do that, but I could get away and have like lunch with my daughter, you know, during the day before that. So that's how I kept in touch. So I would, and then call and calling and keeping in touch that way. So that's what we did. Yeah. Wow. Yes. So you're solid in your recovery, and what does it look like today? What do you do to support yourself in staying uh, sober now? I continue with meetings, um, and then mostly I continue with a, a support group. Um, I'm fond of calling my group of women my tribe. We are in contact frequently, just even texting. You know, one will say, "Oh, I heard this in a meeting," or "I read this, you know, inspiration," or and we'll, you know, send it, text it out, and. And then we try to get together for dinner and um, activities at the sober house that we were all at. And um, I like try to do some service at the sober house, like for the Thanksgiving holiday. The house manager wants to get away, and I said, okay, I'll take two nights 
because someone has to be there and so that she can get away and then you know that's the kind of thing we try to do to help each other out so so if i came to you and it was like my first date the sober house and i was terrified and sad or scared or whatever what would what would your words of encouragement be for me well, I, you know, I have actually have a really good friend who was, she was very upset on her first day there, and she was crying, and I said, you know, give it some time and do the work that you need to do here. And she's like, no, no, I'm so different, and you don't understand what I've been through, <laughs> and now my kids will never, ever speak to me again. I said, you know, I said, it may take a while. It's certainly going to take longer than you want it to, but just just stay and keep and stay and just do it. And when she's crying, you just let her cry, and and, you know, keep in touch, and I, you know, at the time would do, you know, help out a little bit more than I do now, but um, I just, I just say, you know, a lot of it is just give it time, and the way you feel today is not how you're going to feel forever. It will get better. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Could you hear the joy in her voice? I just, you know, I remember having that interview with Carol, and um, I was just smiling the whole time because she's one of those people that's got like twinkly eyes and you can't help smiling when she's talking to you. But now as I listen back to it a few months later, I, you know, I, I, it really strikes me to hear someone talk about rehab and sober living as being such a happy time in their life and such a positive experience. And I think a lot of people that are considering going into something like that are feeling really bad about it, fearful and negative. And I'm really glad that I'm able to share with you Um, the voice of someone who had such a positive experience. So here's another interesting take on, um, on rehab. I want you to meet Angie. So picture this. She's a really lovely young woman, blonde hair, blue eyes, not a bit of makeup. And she's got that perfect skin, you know, and she looks like, I don't know, if I were to meet her, I'd think maybe she was like an Olympic athlete or something. She just has this really wholesome look about her. Uh, she'll tell you very quickly as you start talking to her that she's a science nerd and that uh, she's uh, spent her career in science and uh, is, has, spent a, has a lot of education in that field. Anyway, um, Angie's going to talk a bit about her addiction and recovery. And uh, I want you to take note of the fact that she's probably the only person I've ever heard of. If there's more of you out there, by all means, let me know. I'd love to have you share your story. But Angie was uh, sober for quite a while before she decided to go to rehab. And the reason she went to rehab was because she was afraid she was going to lose her sobriety. So she went to lock it in, even though she was already sober. And I thought that was really interesting and insightful and um you know, kind of funny as she talked about it, because it, it's a funny story. Anyway, she's a delight. So here's Angie. Hi, my name's Angie. Um, I started my sobriety recovery um, in March of 2017. I have not maintained 100% abstinence since then, but I've been sober since July 10th, so just about four months. And so do you think it's important to count your abstinence in terms of, do you think it's important to reset your sobriety date if you stop and start? Do you have a, I know that it's controversial or it's a personal decision. Tell me your personal opinion My on that. My personal opinion is that I should get full credit for the time since I've begun my recovery because I have been growing and changing tremendously since that day. And I think the 98% of days I've been sober is more important than the number of days of a consistent, um, continual sobriety mm-hmm. that I've maintained because I think that undercuts the total amount of healing and growth that I've had. Mm-hmm. So you're in a program that um, has you start counting yes. uh, on continual sobriety, but do you hold in your head um, a, a recovery date? Like both are a date to celebrate yes. in your mind? Absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, I think it's been one of my resentments with my AA program um, is having to restart every time I had a drink (laughs) and having to go in the rooms and be humiliated, even though nobody was judging me, I was clearly judging myself. Um, And uh, so it was a struggle. Was that helpful in in some way as well, though? I think yes and no. Um, In some ways, yes, it keeps you accountable and it it helps people to know where you are so that they can speak with you honestly and help you with where you are. And and if you're lying about it, you're not helping yourself and they can't help you either. So um, I did find myself um, refraining from admitting exactly how many drinks I might have had or how recently 
Um, but I continued to go to meetings. Mm -hmm. I never stopped. And I think that was really key, because I knew I would get there. And I did have plenty of people who supported me and said, don't worry, you know, just keep coming back. When you're ready, you're ready. And I got really frustrated with that term. And, you know, you're ready when you're ready. I'm like, how am I going to know when I'm ready? Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I did get there, and I knew it just it takes time. And, and uh, okay, so this is your one resentment with your program, but I also know that I see in you that you really love your program, too. So tell I me do. what you love about it. <laughs> So I, um, I was encouraged to go to AA by my therapist, who I'd been seeing for several years. And um, I'd not gone to see her about my drinking, and it was something that was put on the back burner. And then after several years, I said, I'm ready. I can't live like this anymore. And she said, go to AA immediately, today. And I was like, what? Now? Today? Wait a minute. i got to think about this. Um, but there's meetings everywhere all the time, and she recommended I go to women's meetings, which is a great recommendation. My very first meeting was actually a mixed meeting. I went by myself uh, in my hometown, um, but there was about six people there, and it was half men and half women. And one of the women that I met that night ended up becoming my temporary sponsor and is now my sponsor still today. Um, and then my second meeting was a Saturday morning women's meeting in my hometown that I fell in love with, and it has just become my the highlight of my week. It's um, I just walk in and it's home. It's um, I the amount of trust and love and support and unconditional everything. I can just tell them anything about me and they're gonna hold me. And uh, yeah, I love it. <laughs> tell me a little bit about your life in terms of, you know, the elevator pitch, mm -hmm. kids, work, age, all that. So uh, I'm 46. I um, She looks 25. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I have a husband and three kids and a dog and a house <laughs> and the suburbs and a career, you know, from the outside. I just have all the American dream. Everything looked perfect from the outside. Um, and uh, I've been drinking my whole life. And it was in my 30s and into my 40s that I started drinking alone um, and starting off with one glass of wine a night um, just to relax. And it just built up over time. And then the past three, four years before I stopped drinking, it just got really, that became my obsession. And that became the highlight of my day and looking forward to when can I drink. Um, and I started to notice that that was what was consuming the time in my brain um, and it really started to worry me as I was starting to make um, bad decisions about, you know, drinking and driving and, and taking more risks. Um, but I didn't uh, want anything really horrible to happen before I stopped drinking, and there were a few close calls um, that really, really woke me up, and I just... Um, knew that I couldn't continue because would, it would end badly if I continued on the path I was on. So um, I chose to get off the elevator before I went to the bottom. And uh, knowing I didn't have to become, uh, you know, hit somebody or, or kill somebody or end up in jail or lose my job or my husband or my family, you know, and I just, I, those are two bigger risks for me. So I'm glad I, I had the strength and courage to ask for help when I did. You told a very funny story last night about going to rehab after having had some sobriety. It never occurred to me. I mean, we all think about going to rehab to get sober, but never to to sustain sobriety. So, mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So it was. Um, I had been mostly sober for over a year, and then um, one of the things that my sponsor and others in the program had told me was because I knew my marriage was a mess, and they said, don't deal with it, don't deal with it, don't deal with it. First year of sobriety, you just deal with getting yourself sober and getting a solid foundation. So I didn't deal with it. I didn't deal with it. I ignored it. And then May last year, um, things kind of blew up with my marriage, and I couldn't ignore it anymore. And so I attempted to save the marriage. And in attempting to do that, I sort of threw my sobriety by the wayside because I couldn't do both. And um, and I was talking to women in the rooms, continuing to go to meetings, but starting to drink a little bit more. And 
And they were like, you've got to stop trying to save everything but yourself because you're, you're going to end up in the wrong place. And, um, and so I knew I needed to get away. And I was looking at all sorts of yoga retreats and things like that that cost a lot of money. And then I said, wait a minute, I could go to rehab. <laughs> I could go away for 28 days and nobody could talk to me or see me and I can just focus on myself and really get this sobriety thing right because it's what I want to do. Is I can't make these decisions in my life until I get my head straight and stop and get out of the crazy environment I'm in. So I went away for a month, and uh, my husband was shocked. He's like, wait a minute, you're all better. Why are you going away to rehab? <laughs> and I said, I'm not all better. I am just beginning to heal and to figure out who I am, and I need this right now. Are you happy with that decision? I'm very happy with that decision. It was the best thing I ever could have done for myself. You have three kids. Yeah. So it's not an easy decision to go away for a month with right. with three kids, especially when you're going away to look after yourself, mm-hmm. three kids, uh, knowing that the family is at home. And I do hear from people that tell me, I can't go to rehab because I have all these obligations. So what would you say to someone who's struggling with that decision? It was extremely hard, and that was the hardest part, and it's still the hardest part today is knowing the impact it had on them for me to be gone for a month because my son is suffering from separation anxiety because of it. Um, But if you don't take care of your own health, nothing else in your life is going to be okay either. And I knew if I didn't do it then, it wouldn't happen. You know, it was very pretty spur of the moment. Um, But once I made the decision, I I just, I knew I had to do it. Uh, And for me, it was also the time of year was somewhat convenient. It was summertime. The kids were out of school. My work was a little bit slower in the summertime. So I did take those factors into consideration because I wasn't like an emergency check-in, like I need to go to detox. Um, so I had a little bit of flexibility of the timing and picking and choosing that timing. But I found it to be a really useful um, thing to do for my sobriety and learning um, in a very intensive way about the, the biology of the disease. And, and, you know, it was like summer school for me, quite honestly. To get you're the, a science nerd. I'm a science nerd. So I was still missing a few of those pieces and being convinced about the disease model. And I got that in rehab. I got that education. Um, and all of the little loopholes and little cracks in my theories were just all filled. And I walked out of there knowing, okay, this is it. There's no getting out of it. There's no getting away from it. I've got this disease, and I have to live a life of recovery. I'm going to make the most of it. Great. Thank you so much. So what you may have noticed as you listen to Andy is that she's not in perfect alignment with her recovery program, even though she is in alignment with the idea of abstinence and the need to stay uh, away from alcohol for life, which is the key thing. But, you know, she does have some some frustrations with it in terms of counting days, things like that. And I found it really interesting to be able to talk to people about the program that they love that's working for them and be able to hear what's not working for them. Because often those of us that are trying to decide whether or not to get involved in a program for recovery, our, our mind frictions and our addiction puts up a lot of, addic- of objections that sound like very logical arguments. And we can talk ourselves out of going um, and feel like we really have, you know, good reason not to go. So I found it really helpful to hear from these women, to hear them explore some of the things that they don't love about the program, even though they love the program. And this made for some pretty rich discussions. So next you're going to hear from Andy, and that's exactly her story. She's got over two years of sobriety. She's really solid in her recovery, and she credits the 12-step program that is a big, big part of her life for making that change in her life. But what she's starting to realize is that there's a real disconnect for her when it comes to the spiritual aspect of the program, and that's because Andy is Jewish. And as you'll hear her explain, even though her program says, you know, it's not about religion, it's about spirituality, there is um, some sort of irreconcilable differences between her understanding of spirituality and the program's understanding of spirituality. 
And so I asked her to explain that for us a little bit because I found it really interesting and something I had never considered before. This is Andy. Okay, I'm talking to Andy, um, who we managed to have breakfast together on the first day and probably could have blown the whole weekend just <laughs> sitting and talking. Um, you had an interesting thought that was really kind of bubbling up for you, something that was kind of itching you about the program that you're in and a question you've been asking yourself. So talk to me a little bit about that. Sure. You know, for me, um, as someone who has been in AA and has taken great value in being part of it, um, it, it really gave me a structure that I needed and a process that I needed, even when I was fighting against it and coming to terms with my own sobriety and my own drinking. Um, as a Jewish woman, there are parts of AA that are very clearly Christian in language. And um, alongside that, there is a discourse that happens within AA that it is uh, pantheistic, that it is acceptable for all religions and agnostics. And I understand that a lot of the tenets are cross-theological, um, and yet, when we say our father at the end of a meeting, or there is language of a relationship with God and God's will, it didn't necessarily resonate with me as a Jew. And so that I needed to explore. So tell us a little bit more about that, because what we hear people say about surrendering to a higher power is you get to define your higher power. So how, why didn't that translate for you? Sure. So I, I am um, religious. And I, I am a Jewish woman, and um, so the concept of God is not one that I have a hard time with. It's something that I feel comfortable with. Um, in AA, the concept of higher power is a different kind of God than the one that I understand as a Jewish woman. And I am not a theologian, so I can't necessarily articulate so well what Jewish theology is, I just know my experience of it. And my experience of Jewish theology is not one where God is interacting with me and talking with me or even aware of me on a daily basis. And in AA, it is. God is. And God is one who has a will for me. And that's a really hard concept for me to get my head around as a Jew. So that's the question that I brought. So the, the, in very broad terms, the biggest one of the, <laughs> the biggest difference, uh, the one of the broad concepts that separates um, Judaism from Christian Christianity and Christianity-like theology is the idea of personal interaction or personal relationship with God. And so, how then do you supplement that for yourself sure, in the program? Sure. So for me. Um, there are a couple of parts. The first part was looking at AA and the language of AA, which I should say I deeply value and has done wonderful things for me and I have a sponsor and I'm working the steps and so this is not to disparage AA at all. Um, it was answering the question of there not being religion in AA um, and there really isn't religion in AA, but there is spirituality and there is theology. There are definitely assumptions about what that higher power does for the people in AA, that higher power has power over people, has a will for people, has care for people, and that, those defining concepts of, for me, in terms of how I read it, are different from the specific relationship or concepts I have as a Jewish woman. So, for me, the first step was even defining the fact that, yes, okay, I believe that there is theology within AA, and that was really important for me to even say, that that exists because that's not a, a conversation that we have much. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, for me, the exploration goes to looking at how the God of my religion and the God of my spirituality are the same person or the same entity or the same power. So did you bring that together this weekend at all? Did you come up with any answers? <laughs> More questions. Oh, I think this is a PhD in the working. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I've just begun reading, and luckily there are some lovely books that are helping me explore that. But um, So I've had the time and space to be able to delve into that, which is really important. And even just naming the fact that I believe there is theology within 
the AA structure is a great comfort to me because it means I'm not crazy. <laughs> and so I can begin from that point of view to reconcile the two concepts of God that I hold. Do you have any recommended readings then for anyone that's in the same position, whether it's because they are of Jewish faith or because they're just struggling with it? She brings a book. I have a What's book. What's that a book? I have a book by that magic. I've been carrying me, and, you know, I'm only halfway through it. So in all fairness, I'm only halfway through it. So I should name, um, I am a practicing Reformed Jew, and so that's important for anyone who's Jewish because it puts a marker in terms of where on the continuum of, of um, being observant I am. Um, and I am reading a book written by Rabbi Shias Taub called God of Our Understanding, um, Jewish Spirituality and Recovery from Addiction, and I have found it to be really lovely. Um, he is a rabbi who is um, much more observant than I, and I'm finding that to be okay. And he has a really lovely way of articulating um, AA through a Jewish lens in terms of God having power affecting our lives, having caring and having will. So he explores those concepts, which I'm really enjoying. Thank you so much for sharing this. And also I love that your bookmark is a bubble hour <laughs> card that I gave you. It is neat. <laughs> Super fan. Thanks. All in one. <laughs> Thanks, Sandy. Thanks. Okay, the next two voices you're going to hear, one is Elizabeth, who I just got a few quick words from her talking about celebrating one year of sobriety, followed by Maureen, who came all the way from London and was the youngest in our group. Hi, Jean, I'm Elizabeth, and I've had a wonderful time these past four days, and I've really connected with these wonderful women in a way that you don't connect quite in the same way with, say, AA meetings, because you're not spending so much immersive time with them, but it's really encouraged me to go out and reach, spend more time with people individually, and really expand those relationships more. Are you feeling excited about that, or a little bit terrified, or? I'd say I'm feeling both. It's intimidating, but the farther I get into recovery, the more excited I am to take on the challenges and push my boundaries, because every time I do it, I feel better about myself. And how long have you been without alcohol? I have been alcohol-free since November 9th, 2017, so just a little bit over a year. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> do you have any plans to mark that milestone? So I actually, um, my husband is also around that same time period, so we went out and we had a nice dinner. And I didn't think too much about, I still get pouty that I can't have wine sometimes, um, but the restaurant that we went to actually had these great mocktails that I didn't know about until I got there. So that was very exciting for me to be like, oh, look, I get a pretty glass. So that was great. And then the other thing that I did to uh, commemorate and celebrate was to come here. Awesome. Congratulations. Thank Thanks. you. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Let's start. Tell me your name and tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, sure. My name's Maureen. I'm 29 years old. I'm originally from France, but I've been living in the UK for the last uh, 11 years. So now I work in London. Tell me about why you decided to quit drinking. Um, I think in the run-up to me uh, quitting drinking about a year ago now, um, I kind of scared myself a few times where... Um, I, I was always a binge drinker, so I didn't drink every day. But when I when I did drink, it was always really heavy. I was always, uh, or very frequently, drinking till 2 or 3 a.m. with people I didn't really know and kind of putting myself in unsafe situations. Um, luckily, nothing nothing bad ever happened, but I was scaring myself, and um, and I felt like I couldn't control it. And um, very, I think, randomly. I was listening to a podcast, uh, the Tim Ferriss Show, and there was an interview with Richard Branson. And the podcast wasn't at all about sobriety. Um, it was kind of a how to improve your life and your career um, and, uh, you know, a very exactly the kind of thing that I would listen to because I'm very achievement-driven and career-driven, which was part of the problem with drinking, actually. But anyway, I'm listening to this podcast, and Tim Ferriss asked Richard Branson, what do you do when you feel unfocused or when you lack motivation to do something? And Richard Branson 
talks for 10 minutes about how when that happens to him, it's usually because he's drunk too much, and, um, and he thinks sobriety is amazing, and if he ever has more than two glasses of wine in an evening, he'll just quit for six months. Um, and I, I listened to that 10-minute segment of Richard Branson talking about sobriety, what, five times in a row? <laughs> and then I realized, surely there are other resources out there <laughs> for sobriety that aren't just Richard Branson. And that's how I found the bubble hour. And for me, you know, the first big step to my sobriety was just the realization that sobriety was cool, that sobriety could, could give you a much better life than drinking. Um, and, uh, and that was kind of the start. So ago. this isn't a six-month thing for you, then. You're going to stick with this for as long as, as, long oh, as you want. Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. But I guess just the realization that, that lots of people stop drinking for, for lots of reasons. Obviously, mine was because I, I have an alcohol problem. Um, but just generally, it's, it's an addictive substance. It's not good for you. Like, you can make a very long list of why you should, anybody could stop drinking. Um, and having, feeling that I wasn't alone in this, um, really helped me to to stop initially. So you're a young woman, single, living alone in London. Are you worried about fun? And what what do you do for fun? And what do you plan to do going forward to keep your life fun and interesting? Um, you know, what I love about being sober is that I can wake up every day and I have this sense of calm in my life, and I have this sense of clarity in my mind that I basically never had when I was drinking. Um, and I'm able to listen to myself a lot more and pay attention to what I want and what I need every day. Um, and there's loads of things that I do for fun. I go rock climbing. I, I love walking in parks. I love meeting up with friends, going to art galleries. And now that I look back at it, I drinking was such a huge waste of time. <laughs> Not to mention that I very regularly embarrassed myself in front of friends or colleagues and obviously felt pretty crappy most days. Um, and now I get to feel good in my own body and actually have time and I have the head space to actually do things I want to do. Um, so there's so many possibilities for fun now that I'm not drinking. So it's better, really. Oh, it's so much better. <laughs> So you, you just spent um, a few days, I said we weren't going to just focus on the retreat, but I just want to ask you about your experience with it, because we were like all different walks of life, all different ages, and um, all different stages of recovery. So were there any any um, sort of moments of new ideas or new connections, or what, what's going to be your biggest takeaway from spending this time on yourself? Um, I think the importance of, of taking a break from my life regularly and not focusing so much on my career all the time, which is what I used to do and what kind of got me into to problems with, with alcohol in the first place. Um, I, it was an interesting experience for me going to the She Recovers retreat because I was one of the youngest people there. I'm probably, you know, the only one who came from Europe. You definitely the only one that came from Europe this time. Um, so, so lots of differences, but at the same time, what I enjoyed most is that everyone was really open and um, really personal, very authentic and vulnerable in sharing their stories. I was really impressed by that. And it made me feel um, really connected, actually, because I could, I could share my story. I could sh um, hear other people's stories. Um, and at the same time, this retreat also offers, uh, offered me um, time to reflect by myself and do things that I never have time to do. And it reminded me that, that those things are really important, those things keep me grounded and, and happy, and I want to take that back to my life in London and make sure that I do take care of myself more. Thank you. Thanks, Jean. Next, I'm be speaking to Barry who is a woman that had uh, a good experience with sobriety, had a lot of sober time under her belt. And then earlier this summer, she had a very short relapse, a matter of hours, during which um, things unfolded that had terrible consequences for her. 
So coming back from this setback has been really difficult. And though she doesn't go into the details of what happened that day, she shares her take on coming back from that setback and especially listen for her take on the difference between sobriety and recovery. I am Barry. And how long have you been alcohol-free? I have been alcohol-free since August 22nd. Actually, I've been alcohol-free since July the 14th, 2018, but I didn't get back into recovery until August the 22nd. Okay, tell me the difference. The difference? Mm-hmm. Why that I changed my... Why? What's the difference between sobriety and recovery? Well, sobriety and recovery... Um, being alcohol-free and not, for me, and not having recovery is just misery, to be honest. Um, I don't, my behaviors haven't changed, so if I'm not drinking, like let's say, okay, on the 14th, I had a few drinks and something awful happened, okay? And from that, I was so ashamed of myself and... So I went home in the summer, I stayed at home, on the couch from July the 20th until August the 22nd. I didn't do anything, I didn't go out of the house, I stayed on that couch, I was depressed, I was mortified with myself, so it wasn't until I got so sick of myself that I realized like I needed to make an effort. I needed to take action in order for me to get well. And for me, um, it's a biopsychosocial illness. It's mind, body, spirit. And so I can sit at home and not drink and be alcohol-free, but I'm not really treating my, my disease, if you will. Does that make any sense? It makes perfect sense. So what did you do then to move from being just simply sober to being in recovery? Well, what I did was I got back on um, Facebook. I had actually de- deactivated my account, so all of the cyber sobriety that I had, I was not doing any of that. So what I did was I reconnected. It was, it's all about connecting for me. So I connected back with people that I knew in different recovery communities online. I went to a 12-step meeting on August the 22nd and um, just kind of put on my big girl panties and just said, look, I've got to do this. And, um, and then really just started getting heavily involved with an accountability partner and um, going to meetings and um, being online with the recovery community and, 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 and meditating. Um, going back to my yoga, I mean, yoga is a big part of my feeling good about myself and having a good, healthy sobriety. So I go to yoga three or four times every morning during the week. I started doing all the things that that treat my mind, my body, and my spirit. Mm-hmm. And I got back into volunteering at my food pantry, which is a wonderful community. Um, I, I just started getting involved in several communities that I'd built for myself instead of isolating. So living life. <laughs> so living life, exactly. Yes. Okay. So yes. tell me, um, what would be your words of encouragement for somebody who's sober curious and just trying to get started or trying to get through early days? What would your words of encouragement be for them? My words of encouragement would be to be patient with yourself, that realize that the alcohol does not work out of one's system it takes about 10 days or so just for the alcohol to get out of the system. A very important thing is actually, for me, was connecting with people who are going through the same same um, situation, so like-minded people. Um, I think online communities are a great start for someone who's sober curious, and there's so many blogs online, um, on Instagram, there are people that post every day. Um, it's a great way go to go look up some meetings if you want to try AA. You know there there are meetings all over the country, um, but I would think the most important thing would be to uh, you know to be patient with yourself, um, realize that the alcohol takes some time to work its way out of your system, and then even once let's say you stop drinking, that the post-acute withdrawal symptoms can last up to 18 months. 
so it's, it's all about treating your self-care and being kind to yourself and but connecting I think connecting with like-minded individuals is really important because doing it alone is is miserable and that I can prove that just for me sitting on spending a um, one month of a beautiful summer on the couch by myself I mean that's not recovery <laughs> okay so, yeah. thank you thank you so much you're welcome the last voice you'll hear belongs to Erica, who's a young mom. She looks hip and cool, like she can just take everything in and handle life as easily as she pulls a granola bar out of her backpack for one of her kids. You just get the impression that she can just take what comes her way. And yet, like all things, as soon as we start talking to people, as soon as we get in those sharing circles, we're very quickly reminded not to compare our insides to other people's outsides and to remember that on the inside, a lot of us just all feel the same, no matter how great things look to the world. And uh, Erica, as it turns out, is very deep and very wise and thinks a lot about things. And I saved her interview for last because I felt like she just gave some really great advice on getting started. And if there's anyone listening who's thinking about getting started today, I think um, you'll find Erica's words hopeful. Uh, for those of us that are on our way um, and been sober for a while, it never we never feel too far away from that first day because every day, every moment of every day, we make the decision to stay sober and keep going. So here is Erica. Uh, my name is Erica. I am 37, and I'm a mom of three. Um, I have years and years of, of using alcohol, and I haven't had a, a drink in over in almost a year and a half. And um, what does recovery look like for you? What are you doing to support your recovery? Um, recovery is, as they say, a patchwork quilt. I have uh, implemented all kinds of things over the past few years as I tried to get to this place. Um, um, exercise, healthy eating, um, and then that kind of evolved into being mindful. Um, and it turned out that I, I actually am, I really enjoy people. And so it's turned into a lot of community building and spending time with people um, and just building a rich, full life. That's what I'm working on. What's your biggest takeaway? You just, you're a busy mom, so to take four days to yourself and just look after you. I know I saw you out bundled up, even on the cold days you went for nice long walks. What are some of the favorite moments that you had looking after yourself this weekend? My favorite moments involve all the people that I met, all the women that I met. Um, I, I'm constantly amazed. I'm really amazed today uh, at the end of all this, how much we all have in common um, and how much I can love other people. Uh, the connection to other human beings is what was missing in my life. And it's um, it's just it's aw awesome to just see over and over again, and especially in a setting like this, just how much we can connect. So that's my biggest takeaway. Um, the time alone was amazing. I'm also going back with more of a structured game plan in my head, game plan in my head, rather than just do important things for yourself and don't stress the small stuff. I'm going back with a more structured game plan of. Um, almost how many hours I can dedicate to the things that don't feed my soul and um, and kind of just focusing on making sure that I hold on to the feeling because I'm a better human right now than I was when I got here. <laughs> when you sat down for the for the first time we sat down as a group, and there's I think 33 of us all together, um, did you expect to feel that connection or were you sort of feeling like, oh, yeah, these are my people or were you not too sure? Like did you have kind of a moment where you realized – that we're all have so much in common, or how did that unfold for you? So day one, I thought none of these people are my people. I thought um, that I had made a mistake in booking this, uh, that I would prefer to read a book the whole time and go to lots of yoga. Um, by day two, I was starting to warm up to the idea of it, but I was still thinking I'm mostly going to hike alone, read books, and do yoga. And something clicked on day three or two. I'm not sure anymore. That's all a blur. Um, where I went from one end to the other, and I just wanted to spend as much time as possible with all of these people because I, I don't know, something clicked. And uh, I'm very surprised that that's the biggest takeaway is the people. If, if um, someone walked up to you when you get home and just said, hey, I, 
I want what you have. How do I get it? What would be, where would you advise them to start? Uh, start super small. Just, I, when I first quit drinking, I don't think I ever thought it was for good, which is mind-boggling at this point. I could never imagine picking it up again now. Just start small. Just, if it's not working, if your life's not working the way it is, then pause, determine what might make it better, and start with small steps. And you can feel the effect of the small steps right away. Um, train for a marathon, go to the gym, eat vegetables. You'll start to feel it and start to, um, but it's, it snowballs. The snowball effect is, it, and don't expect to get from point A to point Z right away. I don't know what point I'm at. I'm somewhere, somewhere along the way, but I'm, I didn't know it was going to turn into this. So don't expect to have this. Um, just start by baby, baby steps. Thank you. Thanks. I suppose it goes without saying that in addition to taking those baby steps, as Erica recommends, you quit drinking. Uh, that's the one thing uh, I add as my personal advice when someone asks me how to get sober. I point out that it's really important to quit drinking. Um, it, we've heard guests on this show say they tried to read themselves sober, they tried to do a million things, but they kind of wanted to get over addiction without having to quit. And you can't get recovery if you don't have sobriety. So that's my addition to all of the wisdom that we heard today from these wonderful ladies is that as you're doing all these great things for yourself, remember to quit drinking. Get it out of your house. Get it out of your life and replace it with something else. You can replace it with meetings. That's why a 12-step program suggests you do uh, 90 meetings in 90 days on your first 90 days of sobriety. That's to fill your time. It's to fill your calendar. It's to fill your life with something else. Um, have craft supplies. I just was texting with someone today who's really struggling to get through the riching hour. And I said, use your strong hours of the day to prepare for the weaker hours later. So in the morning when you're like, yes, I'm definitely quitting today, make yourself a fruit tray and put it in the fridge. Make yourself a batch of cookies and put it in the cupboard. Um, Set out a magazine and a blanket and a nice little tray with some flowers on it or something. Set yourself up a little scene that you can go to later and say at 8 o'clock tonight, I am going to go hit that couch and read that book. And just make a plan for yourself that doesn't include alcohol because uh, part of addiction is that you've trained yourself that when you feel discomfort – a.k.a. withdrawal, but whenever you feel discomfort in your life, you've trained yourself to only comfort with alcohol. So build an environment for yourself that includes other comforts. And as Erica said, start really small and um, pick up all the little wise nuggets that you heard from all these women today. And on every other podcast that's out there and blog or whatever you're listening to, put those things together. Make yourself a patchwork quilt and then crawl under it. But don't forget to quit drinking if you're trying to get sober. So my thanks go to all of the women on the show today, as well as our episode, uh, more recent episode of Early Voices in Recovery. We were all at the same retreat. Uh, thanks also to all the women there that I wasn't able to catch for an interview before they left. I really uh, love and adore you all. I'm glad we all met. Um, if anyone in this episode has really spoken to you and you'd like to send them a message, you can email it to thebubblehour at gmail.com and I will forward it on to them and make sure they get it. As always, you can reach me here, thebubblehour at gmail.com or through my blog, which is unpickledblog.com. I think that is everything for today. So thanks for listening, everyone. And until next time, take good care. Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Weakness head on me In a dark corner is where shame lies behind We think you're strong Rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can't
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.